Thank you uh, to all our brilliant panelists who have joined us and have hello to everyone who is watching this live right now. We're obviously going to be talking about Labour's Brexit policy as well as the recent developments. Um, as you all probably know, talks are ongoing between Brussels and the UK at the moment. Boris Johnson has set himself a hard deadline of the EU Council meeting on October 15th, which is obviously very rapidly approaching. And he's decided that we need to get a deal before then. So we're going to be talking about all of those things and what Labour thinks of all of that. So I'm going to introduce our fantastic speakers, first of all, and allow them to make opening statements. And then we're going to launch into the Q&A. Um, and if you're watching this on YouTube live, there'll be a, a little embedded Slido app there and you'll be able to ask questions and vote up questions that you think I should ask them. So first up, uh, Rachel Reeves has been Labour MP for Leeds West since 2010. She's now Shadow Chancellor for the Duchy of Lancaster and Shadow Cabinet Office Minister, which means she is shadowing Michael Gove, and that means she's in charge of Labour's Brexit policy. So she's going to talk for about five minutes now on what Labour wants from Brexit. So over to you, Rachel. Thank you very much, uh, Sienna, for having me here today. Uh, and uh, although I can't see you, um, it's great to be with um, uh, you um, you all uh, in the audience. Um, so my, my constituency in, in Leeds, Sienna, you mentioned that I've been the MP in Leeds West since 2010, voted to leave the European Union in 2016, although the city of Leeds overall voted marginally in favour of remaining. Um, I still have a I still have a seat. I'm still the MP, but my majority has now been uh, reduced substantially for a whole variety of reasons that any of us have knocked on doors know knows about. But one of the reasons is our position on um, on on Brexit. And so, while in the last Parliament I was one of the MPs supporting uh, the Kyle Wilson amendment and uh, a confirmatory vote and a, and a people's vote, I do think that the election. <clears throat> excuse me, of last year changed things in quite substantial ways. First of all, the Tories now have an 80-seat majority, which makes it much harder to build the parliamentary alliances that we did benefit from in the last parliament by giving us Conservative MPs to work with uh, and in a way that we were able on numerous occasions to defeat the government and to uh, stop them taking forward their plans, that often their damaging plans for the country. But also, as well as the parliamentary arithmetic, the truth is the government now have a very clear mandate to deliver the oven ready deal that they promised us in the election last year. And that, of course, also changes the, the dynamics and the debate. Uh, whereas things were much less clear after the 2017 election, we're not in that position um, anymore. And so I was appointed by IKEA in uh, April this year, by which point we had already left the European Union. So my, um, my, my time in, in this role has all been during the negotiation periods. And our priority in the Labour Party has been pushing on the government to deliver on the deal that they promised the British people. And you'll remember from the election last year that that deal was going to preserve workers' rights and a whole host of uh, other uh, um, uh, rights, as well as protect jobs. Well, the oven ready deal uh, hasn't exactly turned out like it was supposed to. And many of us worry that the government, whether the government even remember to turn the oven on. But we are where we are uh, um, now. And we are now looking down the barrel of leaving without a deal at the end of this year, which would have disastrous consequences, not least for our economy and particularly for uh, manufacturing jobs, particularly in those parts of the country that turned to the Conservatives in the elections last year, but also uh, for our security uh, arrangements, our global cooperation in things like fighting pandemics, but also fighting uh, uh, um, uh, tax um, avoidance and tax exploitation. So leaving without a deal would be the very worst thing uh, that could happen now. So we've been pushing the government on delivering a deal. But also that's not the summit of our ambitions. Just any old deal is not the deal that a Labour government and the Labour Party would be striving for now. We want a deal that protects jobs and investment into our country, that protects workers' rights, environmental rights, animal welfare standards and consumer uh, rights, and also preserves peace in Northern Ireland. So if the government 
were to secure a deal and we were to leave with that deal at the end of the year, it would only be a building block for what Labour would seek to achieve in government, building on what is likely to be a very thin, a very slim deal and building on it based on our uh, um, values. Uh, and I hope that we'll be in a position in four years time to be able to do just that and to ensure that our ongoing relationship with the European Union is one built on our shared values, but also on our national interest to protect jobs and investment, to protect those hard-won rights that those of us in the Labour Party and the Labour movement have fought so hard for, and also in preserving that um, that hard-won peace and stability in Northern Ireland as well. So if there is a deal, it is only a building block deal and a building block for a closer relationship under a Labour government in the future. I've probably spoken for more than my five minutes, uh, Sienna, but you've been very indulgent. Uh, I look forward to taking questions as well in a bit. That's great. Thank you. That was, it was six minutes, so don't worry about that. <laughs> um, so next we have Stephen Bush. He's a political commentator. He has a column for the eye. And above all, he is the political editor of The New Statesman. So he's going to respond to some of the things that Rachel was talking about there and just set out some of his thoughts on Labour's Brexit policy. Yeah, um, thank you very much uh, for having me. I think, yeah, there's a really interesting kind of, yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, the, the sort of, the strange position the Labour Party finds itself in is that um, why I think Rachel's correct, of course, to say that no deal would be a disaster for the United Kingdom, a disaster uh, for, for lots of reasons. Um, it's, of course, not an end state. And in some ways, I suspect when I speak to lots of people in the Labour Party, and I think it's felt even more clear during the leadership election, then lots of people in the Labour Party sort of almost felt the night Boris Johnson would take care of this question for them, then there would be a Brexit deal, and then uh, at the next election, the Labour Party would be able to fight an election on issues it is more comfortable, and then its electoral coalition is united on, like the economy or the NHS or you know, any other issue you, you sort of care, care to name. Um, I think kind of the, the sort of the big difficulty for the Labour Party, right, is is, is what happens if, uh, I, mean, I think it feels, uh, you know, I, and I, I imagine I'd be intrigued to know what Anand makes of this, but I think it's likely that we will not have a deal um, by the end of, of the year because, uh, you know, although, you know, when you speak to Conservative MPs, they'll, they're, they're sort of, they're kind of very upbeat about it. The reality is, is while the internal market bill remains on the books, while um, the Conservative government has made such a virtue of of these issues, which is very hard to U-turn on in a way which is easily finessable and ignorable, I think it's hard to see how the gap between the principles, even though it's a lot smaller than it was in the first phase, will be bridged, not least because there isn't all that much difference between the type of trade deal than the United Kingdom is currently seeking and a no deal, other than the fact that all of the disruption happens up front. I think the kind of question that the Labour Party needs to ask itself is whether or not it wants to be a party of close alignment going forward, or if it broadly thinks that by the end of this parliament, the damage of that disruption will have been done, and then it would prefer to have a set of economic policies designed around us kind of floating in the mid-Atlantic, it were, as it were, neither tethered to the EU as a trade bloc or to the United States or to China, but as a kind of kind of more free-floating um, sort of free-trading nation. Um, the, the reason why I think this question is sort of important to, um, to, to answer quite quickly is if the answer is a close relationship, then the most meaningful close relationship is single market membership, which of course means the free movement of labor, which of course, yeah, everyone on this panel who's, who's ever knocked on a door or box popped someone, or indeed in any way interacted with most voters will know was such a politically difficult issue for the labor party. And I kind of think that the sort of, in some ways, right, Labour has been freed from the need to have a kind of day-to-day -day position because the Conservatives are going to win every vote on Brexit, and there is. Um, and the one situation in which Labour could possibly find themselves being influential in this parliament is one in which Boris Johnson gets a deal somehow by the end of this year. It's controversial in his own party, and the Labour Party has to be the difference between that deal passing and no deal. But even that's quite politically easy because 
voting for a deal to prevent no deal, I think, is, is not anywhere near as fraught as voting for Brexit in the last parliament uh, would, would have been at and indeed was for so many Labour MPs. But because I think it's quite likely that as a result of that, Brexit will continue to be a live issue at the next election, um, I think some of these very difficult issues around free movement are going to have to be faced and argued for or faced and argued against, right? If, if, if the Labour Party decides it doesn't want that close relationship, it's going to have to have that argument with the other half of its electoral coalition. But uh, I think um, this, this fight's one that Labour's going to have to have um, because the kind of the dream that there would be an oven-ready trade deal by the end of the four years, that the Labour Party could kind of just go, oh, well, we'll get a bit closer, we'll get a bit further away, I think now looks very unlikely. Brilliant, thank you. Well, that's um, some tricky news for the Labour Party. Um, Anand, uh, obviously, is Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London, and he is, more importantly, Director of the UK and a Changing Europe for this event. And he's going to react to some of those statements, uh, including what Rachel was saying about Labour's Brexit policy. Go ahead, Anand. Okay, I'm probably... <clears throat> I probably lean slightly towards there being a deal a little bit more than Stephen does, if only because actually, I mean, it's one of the things we should talk about. It becomes, I think, far harder for the Labour Party to launch a viable attack on the Prime Minister, even if he gets what promises to be a very, very thin uh, trade deal. I think should he should he come away with nothing, it's relatively easy for the Labour front bench to expand their critique of his lack of competence to include Brexit as well. Uh, and that, I think, will focus minds in number 10. And whilst with Stephen, it is hard to see, particularly on state aids, where the compromise could come, uh, it's worth bearing in mind that even if some of Boris Johnson's backbenchers are dissatisfied. There's going to be no vote on the deal per se. There will be a vote on some of the primary legislation we need to be ready for Brexit, but not on the deal itself. Which brings me to Labour's position. I think to date, keeping a low profile and not saying very much about Brexit has made quite a lot of sense. I think there was very little Labour could have usefully done around the extension of transition, which strikes me should have been a no-brainer given the pandemic. But actually, Labour calling for an end to transition would have left them exposed to being the sort of party of remain accusation. So it was probably wise not to do that. But one big issue that I think confronts Labour now is this. Even with the kind of deal that Boris Johnson is negotiating, it looks almost certain, and all the economic forecasts suggest, that the impact on our economy of Brexit will be greater over 10 years than the impact of the pandemic. Uh, because most economists expect, even if not a V-shaped recovery, then a pretty significant recovery from the impact of lockdown once we're out of it, whereas the Brexit effect will keep rumbling on. And LSE have done some interesting modelling on this that show even with a deal, the Brexit impact is greater. And I suppose one question now for Labour is whether you at least try to lay the groundwork for a strategy that says unemployment is higher than it otherwise would have been, because of the nature of Brexit you, and, and lay the groundwork for that argument in the run up to the next election. It seems to me that by placing so much emphasis on the fact the prime minister needs to get a deal, there's really not enough focus on the fact of what a good deal would look like. I'm not convinced uh, Brexit per se and relations with the European Union will be that much of a, of a significant issue at the next election. We'll wait and see. I suspect if they get a deal, this government will just stop talking about Brexit and quite possibly stop negotiating with the European Union. And, and so a lot of the impacts that Rachel talked about, the inability to cooperate between our police forces, for instance, will be a function of a deal as much as a function of no deal. Uh, but I would caution against, uh, in electoral terms, coming out too strongly in favour of free movement. And it's worth looking out for the British Social Attitude Survey, which comes out on Thursday, has got some interesting data on this, which I'm not allowed to talk about. But I think it indicates that, you know, across leave and remain, it might not be the wisest electoral strategy to argue loudly for a return to free movement, which of course then means that the single market is gone. Can I leave it at that? Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. Um, okay, so we're going to just launch into some of the questions now, and I'm going to mix in some readers' questions and do some of my own as well. So first of all, I just want to take a quick step back just for a couple of questions and go back to the last election. So Rachel, you were you were one of the backbench Labour MPs 
who was who were in favour of a fresh referendum more so than the leadership where that was a bit of an awkward idea and they came to it with some hesitation. How do you feel about that policy in retrospect? And how do you feel now about Labour has been using the Tory slogan, get Brexit done, basically against the Prime Minister, which is sort of endorsing their message at the last election. It's It might be an effective one. It was, a, it was an effective message at the election, but it was obviously not one you agreed with. So how do you feel about those two things now? Um, thanks, um, Sienna. <coughs> Sorry, uh, coffee. Mm. Um, so... Yes, I, I was one of the people who, in a way, I came reluctantly to the um, to the view of um, of having a um, a public vote or a confirmatory um, uh, vote. But in the last Parliament, it, it felt like there was no other way out of the situation we were in because nothing that came to Parliament was managing to secure a majority. Um, there wasn't a majority. There was a majority against everything. There wasn't a majority for anything, and so I felt that um, getting a deal through Parliament and then putting it to the people was the best way in resolving the stalemate that we had um, we had reached. Um, and, and, I, and I still think that that would have been better than the situation we are we are in now. But obviously, after that election was called in December last year that all changed and there is now no chance of, of, of having a public vote or a confirmatory vote because the Conservatives have got a majority of, of 80 so things move on don't they um, and now we've got a, a choice really between um, a, a deal and, and the deal that the Prime Minister promised was oven ready last year or no deal and the consequences of, of leaving without a deal at the end of this year or ending the transition period with no deal would be absolutely disastrous for, you know, and I've been in the last few weeks to the, the proposed lorry park in, um, in Kent, in Ashford. Last Friday, I was up in Hull at the port there and talking to, to businesses. Not having a deal would be disastrous for jobs in our country, particularly in those parts of the country that need jobs the most right now. Having no deal whilst we are also going through a pandemic like this would be an, a catastrophe. Uh, and, and and not just for the economy, and I talk probably more about the economy than, than, than other things given my sort of background working as an economist, but in other areas like sharing data to, to fight organised crime and terrorism, preserving peace in Northern Ireland, all of those things require having a deal and so now we have pivoted to this message of you know, the government have got to deliver what they promised they're going to deliver on Brexit we seem to be more keen on them delivering on their deal than the Tories do now because I think we understand the consequences of leaving without a deal in a way that they still don't because they you know probably a lot of them in their heart of hearts would rather leave without a deal if they could possibly get away with it I would lend them more to Anand's analysis and Stevens though that I, I think on balance, and we'll all find out in, in a few weeks' time, I think on balance now that there is more likely to be a deal than, than not. The differences are not insignificant, but they're definitely not insurmountable. And, um, and, and, and I think it would, it would give a boost to the Prime Minister to come back with a deal and say, you know, our negotiating stance has, has worked, I've delivered what I promised to the British people and now we can move on. So I think there probably will be a deal, um, but I, I, I think that... Um, um, I, I think that our opposition now of, of encouraging them to deliver on that is it goes with the grain of, of how the British public feel. And also it is the right thing to do It's in the national interest to secure a deal. So, um, you know, things change um, in, in, in politics and, uh, and, and, you know, you have to fight for the best deal, the best outcome you can get. I, I think that options in the last parliament are very different from the options in this one uh, and, uh, and, 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 and so that's why we're now pushing the government, urging the government to deliver the deal it, it promised and we'll hold them to that, hold them to the high standards they set themselves in the, um, in the election last year and in the political declaration as well. Thank you Rachel, I think I've got loads of questions about all of those comments but I'll, I'll just briefly go to Stephen and ask him I mean, do you think that there was an optimal Brexit strategy for Labour at the last election? And 
was it did it not really matter because the tensions in the party and and within the electoral coalition were so difficult that it meant ending up in an awkward position was sort of inevitable and because you think Labour might end up in in a very similar position at the next election is the same thing going to happen? Um, no so I think in the last last parliament there was no good Brexit option for the Labour Party as a whole um, now I think you know Labour, Labour would have been better off if the minority of Labour MPs who did want to vote for a Brexit deal had voted for it instead of sabotaging everything, right? Like the, the central problem the Labour Party had in the last parliament is you had about 40 uh, Labour MPs who didn't want to vote to stop Brexit, didn't want to vote for Theresa May's Brexit. Uh, and only some of them suddenly belatedly went, oh gosh, I should probably vote for Boris Johnson's Brexit, which meant that nothing could pass. And I think as Rachel says, that meant that the only plausible option that the Labour Party could land on eventually was that let's have a vote on the deal but that was always going to alienate a large chunk of of, of the the Labour Party's coalition and it would have been impossible for the Labour leadership whoever had been its leader to, to end up in a pro a more pro-Brexit position than the one they'd had in 2017 particularly once the the, the Lib, Dem, Lib Dems had started to do a bit better in in 2019 at, in the in the local and European elections. I think this time it's quite different purely because we have left. Um, there, there is no political force outflanking Labour on its Remain flank because there is nowhere to outflank to. Um, I think so. I think all of that stuff gets a lot easier. I think you know where it becomes more difficult is if it's the Labour Party's view that um, there are constraints on spending and they do need to be worried about uh, our debt to GDP ratio. Well then the Brexit position is, is also, also becomes a fiscal cost, right? Like, yeah, so there needs to be an awareness that if the Labour Party wants to broadly not fight an election on Brexit, then that has implications for what it has to promise on tax and spend. And I think that's going to be more of the 2024 difficulty is where, how does the Brexit position affect the position on everything else rather than it getting stuck in a kind of impossible situation like the one it faced in 2019. Okay, thank you. Quite a few of the questions uh, are about voting on the deal. And Anand, and I'm just going to ask you to address some of them. Why won't there be on a vote on the deal? Can you explain a bit of, a bit about the kind of parliamentary next steps? Because I think some of the questions are about how Labour will vote. Because when Boris Johnson secured his majority, the government altered the text of the withdrawal agreement bill so that Parliament didn't get to have a vote on the trade deal. Uh, you know, one of the things they slipped through unnoticed last January, or unnoticed by most people, was the fact that Parliament was fundamentally disempowered. I mean, it's, it's of a piece with this government. This government wants to take back control, not just from the European Union, but it appears from judges, from Parliament, from devolved governments, from you, you name it. And that's one of the things they did. So there won't have to be a formal parliamentary vote. As I said, there are certain pieces of legislation we'll need to pass to get ready for Brexit. And it might be that you end up with Brexit ultras kicking up a fuss about that and trying to register protests if there's a deal they don't like, but there'll be no formal vote on the deal. Okay, thank you for clearing that up. Um, okay, so Richard Hoffman asks, for our economy to recover, we will have to rejoin the single market and customs union. Shouldn't we just be honest with the public? Rachel, would you like to answer that one? I, I don't accept the premise of, of the question. I don't think we have to um, rejoin the single market and uh, customs union. Um, and in in four years' time, when the next election will be, businesses, you know, would have started doing things differently. I'm not um, for a moment suggesting this is all going to go well. I mean, I would much rather us, um, you know, remain in the European Union, but. Um, I, I, there's, there's, there's no there's no way that the Labour Party or, or indeed the Liberal Democrats are going to go into the next election arguing for another referendum and another massive upheaval uh, to our economic arrangements, our, our security arrangements, etc. As I said in my opening statement, we will, if there is a deal, and uh, for the reasons I gave earlier, I, I think that is the most likely one, some sort of slim, thin deal, whatever you want to call it, that those are building blocks from which to start from. 
and uh, we can have much closer cooperation than what the Conservatives want to uh, achieve through these negotiations. But that can be short of being in a formal customs union and, and single market. I, I, I just think that, you know, further upheaval would not be good for, um, for, 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 for anybody. And it's not a good electoral uh, strategy as, as well. Um, I would want to, um, to build on a relationship that, um, that is good for jobs is also, and this is something that will be neglected from the Conservative deal, will preserve that um, those, the, the, the rights in terms of uh, workers' rights, animal welfare standards, uh, it, 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 um, environmental standards, etc., which, although the government talked a good game on that at the end of last year, uh, when they were trying to win votes, uh, dropped particularly the workers' rights at the earliest opportunity. And as we saw from the agriculture uh, bill, are not willing to enshrine those environmental or animal welfare standards into, into legislation as, as well. So look, th there are things that we would want to, to do uh, differently, very differently from the type of deal that I think we will um, we will end up with. But I think economically and politically, it would be a mistake to argue to go back into the uh, single market and, 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 and customs union. Okay, thank you. That's clear. Um, Stephen, I'm going to ask you about uh, some of the stuff you mentioned in your opening statement. So the government says it wants a Canada-style relationship, right? And I mean, first of all, what do you think the chances are that it's going to get it? Um, you're obviously less optimistic about that than the others, but also will it actually make much of a difference considering that compared to no, compared to no deal, considering that it does obviously the, the deal they're trying to get involve an awful lot of friction and considering how hard businesses are being hit by coronavirus. Do you want to just expand on those points? Yeah, so in terms of what, so because essentially what the government basically wants both a kind of Canada level of market access but also crucially a Canada level of regulatory alignment uh, autonomy, which it is not going to get because the, essentially the EU's argument is, well, look, Canada is a billion gajillion miles away. I exaggerate slightly, but you know, it's, it's, it's a long way away. The United Kingdom is right on our doorstep. Uh, therefore, you, you can't have this level of market access and that level of, of, of alignment. Um, now, yeah, it is, of course, possible that Boris Johnson will use the theatre of the deadline to do what they did last time where they went oh woogity woogity we've been forced into this oh by the way we've put a border in the Irish Sea um, and Tory MPs kind of accepted it I, I just think it's unlikely because um, yeah one because the issues that they divide on are, are so substantial but also just because Conservative MPs um, are so annoyed anyway about everything really you know about the lockdown about covid about you know you you name it the average tory mp is grumpy about it right so like I, I therefore just think it's unlikely that they'll be able to do a kind of like you know you know kind of sort of magic trick um i think in terms of what that means for what um yeah that but that does mean a very thin deal sorry uh, i i'm where I've, I've forgotten what the second part of your question was sorry basically just i mean Compared to no deal, how different is it? And how does that, the fact that the, a deal, their version of a deal and no deal are actually quite similar apart from the upfront dis disruption as you were talking about. And what does that mean for Labour's stance at the moment? What it's saying, because it's saying get that deal, but you're saying those two things aren't actually that different. Yeah, I mean, so I, in terms of what it means for Labour's stance, I think in terms of the sort of political tactics of the next however many months saying, get a deal rather than a no deal is, is is a huge difference. Actually, also in terms of people's lived experiences, right? Because although in the end, right, a no deal or a Canada style deal means a lot of businesses will close or have to change in a very painful way. The crucial difference is, is that all of that disruption happening up front when loads of businesses have taken on huge costs to deal with the pandemic or they've switched to distance working just makes all of that much, much worse. Of course, that is the other reason why it may be in the government's political interest to go for a no deal rather than a Canada style deal because um, the next half many months are going to be really horrible anyway. So, you know, maybe, you know, and I think there is a view of, of there is definitely a view of, of some at the top of the Conservative Party that then you're better off having all of the disruption up front. So the disruption of the end of the further disruption of the pandemic and the disruption of a no deal Brexit rather than this kind of slow three year period of businesses closing because of the deal. Now, 
I suspect actually from a Labour Party perspective, right, actually that long, slow, it's basically the, the difference between the two deals is the difference between your tyre getting a puncture when you're going at 70 miles an hour and your tyre getting a puncture where it's in the garage, right? Now, the difference is actually from a Labour Party perspective, right, no one on the front bench is going to sit there going, the economy is going badly because of an EU deal. They're going to go, it's because the government is incompetent. And I think in terms of the electoral project than, than, than Labour has, that makes perfect sense. But I think it does come back to the kind of the question we had a, a moment ago. Of, if you think the Labour Party is better off in the single market, then at some point you've got to make on make, make you've got to make that argument, or you've got to accept that, that has an implication for how radical you can be uh, from an economic perspective. I think from the customs union, you know, like there are loads of functioning economies in the in the you know, in the, on the continent which aren't in it. Yeah, you know, Norway's not in it. Um, I think there's actually a pretty good argument to be made that we will we'll do just fine outside of the customs union. But um, but yeah, it, it does. It makes the politics of the next four years for Labour a lot easier, I think, if there is a deal. But it does like these these challenges are all Annalise Dodds's problem in 2025 if Labour wins. Sienna, can I just add a couple of things? Yeah, go ahead. Firstly, it's not the case that the government wants a Canada deal. The government says it wants a Canada deal, but they're asking for something significantly more than Canada. Canada, amazingly enough, wasn't that fussed about road haulage when they negotiated with the European Union. Okay, They weren't worried about licenses for trucks because not many trucks drive from Canada. Canada wasn't that bothered about mutual recognition of qualifications. The government is actually asking for considerably more than a Canada deal, uh, whatever they might be saying publicly. The second thing I'd say is, let's just accept the fact that the majority of the medium-term economic impact of Brexit comes from leaving the single market. Uh, it's what uh, all economic organisations have shown. It's what those leaked government forecasts in the days that government used to do forecasts about this kind of thing showed. It's non-tariff barriers. And even manufacturers, even the car manufacturers, even the air, aerospace companies, the pharmaceutical companies will take a tremendous hit from a deal that means no tariff for goods because their stuff's going to have to be certified both here and in the European Union because they're still going to have to fill out a declaration. They're going to have to they're going to have to meet EU standards to trade with the EU uh, from here. That is what will have the. We can argue about whether or not politically it makes sense to talk about the single market, but I don't think we can realistically argue about the economic impact of leaving the single market, which will be the most profound part of this Brexit cost. And then, do you also want to address how do you think that coronavirus should? shape or change Labour's Brexit position, if you think it should? Well, I think uh, as, as a sort of outsider, the obvious way in which coronavirus changed things was in uh, emphasising the need to extend transition so that, this, so that we don't deal with the two at the same time. I'm, I'm not criticising Labour for not calling for that, because as I said before, I think politically that would have been impossible. But I would caution against those who think that the impact of a no-deal Brexit can somehow be hidden under the impact of corona because the impact of a no-deal Brexit will be different. So just take one area where actually uh, supply chains have proven remarkably resilient. It never ceases to amaze me that if you walk into a supermarket now, you can buy exactly the same stuff as you could before COVID, uh, more or less the same prices, because the food supply chain has kept on working very, very well indeed. In the event of a no-deal Brexit, you will be facing, you will be paying tariffs on imported items from the continent. A lot of fresh stuff will struggle to get here still fresh because there will be disruption at the ports. Uh, so you will you will see the potential for shortages and the potential for price rises. Even with a deal, I think the point about backlogs at the port and a potential to struggle with fresh products might be the case, though it's slightly less likely than with no deal. Thank you. Okay, so Rachel, I, I've seen you, you're taking notes there, so you probably want to respond to some of the things that they've been saying. But also, I wanted to pick up on that point uh, that Anan was mentioning there, which is obviously to avoid backlogs and traffic jams. The government has planned to stop lorries entering Kent unless they have this required paperwork. Uh, I think Stephen is quite a fan of that, that policy, actually. He's defended it. What does Labour think of it? And um, what have you learned from going around? Because you've been doing visits, haven't you? What have you learned about that? And what's your view of that idea? 
I get the most glamorous visits in the uh, in the in the shadow cabinet because I get to go to uh, 29 lorry parks over um, the next few weeks. Uh, two down, 27 to go. Um, I, I, I went to the one in 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 Ashford, which is quite a long way um, from from Dover. Um, and and the idea, the government's idea, is that they're not lorry parks; they're places where uh, things can be verified. And then you can then roll straight on to uh, the port at Dover. Uh, Dover's got particular problems because there's no land around Dover um, for, for any lorries to be parked up or any verifications to be done. So this has to be done away from the border. When I went to Hull on Friday, I, the problems are still pretty um, 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 massive, but there is a lot more land um, around the port where the, the checking and verification can be done. I think Anang's point that you're going to have delays whether there is or is not a deal is absolutely um, uh, valid because there's going to be massive teething problems. Um, the IT systems, Hilary Bennett was asking Michael Gove about this in Cabinet Office questions last week. The the IT systems that need to be put in place have still not been tested. I've been doing a lot of work with the Road Haulage um, Association and, uh, and, 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 and they are furious that they haven't been able to test out any of the systems. Um, it's customs agents, et cetera, are not yet um, in, in place. Um, and so even if there is a deal, I think there are going to be significant delays at the port. However, the difference between a deal and a no deal is that I think in time, people will get used to these checks and, the, and, and this additional bureaucracy. It will still not, it won't be costless for business, um, but it will become a, a cost of, of doing business uh, that will be managed. And I don't think you'll have the same level of frictions. Whereas if there isn't a, a deal, there's going to be an awful lot more uh, um, uh, checks um, um, at, that, um, at, the, at the border. So, um, so I think, again, a, a deal will, will, will make things a lot easier. I mean, the idea that you're going to have to have some sort of passport to get into, into Kent, I mean, I, I think it is, you know, it's, it's laughable if it wasn't so, um, so, so serious. Um, I, I, you know, you, 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 we can't be in a situation where you need passports to, to, to travel around the United Kingdom. But, but I think it just speaks to the sort of the chaos and the incompetence that is going on here, that here we are, you know, four years and three prime ministers since we voted to leave the European Union, uh, that we're still not in a position where we have po properly thought through and have processes in place. Um, you know, this is a government who is now populated with people who wanted Brexit from long before we had a referendum, and yet they haven't done the, the serious thinking to make it work. You know, look, I think whatever sort of Brexit we're going to have is going to have costs to the economy uh, and costs for us as, as a country. But these are the people who wanted Brexit to happen. It's their responsibility to make it work. And the fact now we're talking about 29 lorry parks and passports to get in and out of, of, of or into Kent, um, I, I think is, um, I think it's just really, you know, shambolic, to be honest. Stephen, I'm going to offer you a, a right of reply because I accused you of liking that policy idea. Do you want, do you want the right of reply? Yeah, so actually, I mean, I think like one, the, the, the thing about the, that policy and you've got to understand, right, is that if you want to leave the customs union and the regulatory orbit of the European Union, I mean, neither of which I would, well, I would leave the customs union if, you, if, you've, if you've left, you might as well be outside of the customs union. But if you're going to leave the regulatory orbit of the European Union, you're going to have to have border checks somewhere and our port infrastructure is not built for, and indeed geographically, we're not really built to have modern customs checks in our, any of those ports, which means you do end up with weird internal border checks miles away from the actual border. Um, of course, and this is why I think, this is one of I think the really important things that Labour needs to get slightly better at nailing is that um, the reason why we are having to do all of this like in a panic during a pandemic is because the government opted not to seek the extension then it had a legal right to do so. It chose to put its own weird ideological preoccupations ahead of fighting a novel health crisis, right? You know, like we have left, we'd left on the 31st of January, vote leave, have won. And it is not, it's an act of monumental selfishness that we are going through all of this now. And I think then that monumental selfishness needs to be explained and, and uh, and exposed because I think even regardless of how you feel about the remain leave question I think everyone broadly understands that there's lots of things all of us would have liked to do this year and we haven't managed to do 
Um, and the government really could have decided that not having to build this customs infrastructure was one of them. But if you don't like the checks in Kent, then you've got to stay in the regulatory and customs orbit of the EU. I think if I can just say the selfishness goes slightly further than that. It's not simply a selfishness in terms of having not put the infrastructure in place. And Stephen is absolutely right. That infrastructure is going to have to get that is implicit in leaving the single market and the customs union. You're going to have to have those checks somewhere. And he's also right in saying that geographically, Dover is a lot more stretch for space than either Calais or Rotterdam. So it's more of a problem for us simply because of square acreage, if you like. Uh, but the selfishness goes further because the government has insisted on a message that is, this will all be fine. Whereas actually the message should be, because the, the, you can put all the infrastructure in place that you want, but if businesses haven't prepared, if they haven't started figuring out what the paperwork looks like, if they haven't started figuring out what extra regulatory steps they need to go through, then whatever the government has done, that trade is going to seize up at the border. But to do that, you need a government message that is, with or without a deal, this is going to be a nightmare. You need to start preparing yourself for it. But of course, for the government, there were good political reasons why saying, even if we negotiate a deal, it's going to be a hell of a lot harder for you to trade, isn't politically the best thing to be saying, but it would be the honest thing to be saying and the only way you could get people to prepare the way they should be. Thank you. Um, Rachel, I'm going to ask you about, basically, some people have been saying Labour's strategy of staying probably quiet on the government's plans on Brexit and even on the internal market bill, the law-breaking stuff, because it considered all that to be kind of a distraction from COVID because they're trying to, you know, there's all these massive COVID failures and actually they wanted to be talking about Brexit and law-breaking and stuff like that. So that made sense. But... Is there a chance that that actually has encouraged Johnson to go for no deal, go for more extreme moves on Brexit? Because the Tories need to go somewhere that Labour simply can't follow. It's like a sort of game of daring Labour. I, I think that the approach to be focusing on, on COVID has been absolutely the right approach. And if we'd have been you know, banging on about Brexit for the last um, six months whilst the country was going through a pandemic, um, I, I think people would think that our priorities were were, were all wrong. And, um, and, and and so, you know, our focus has been the country's focus, which has been tackling the, the, the coronavirus um, pandemic. I, I don't think it's right to say that, that we've been, you know, silent on issues of, of Brexit, most of all on the internal markets bill, where, um, you know, I think Ed Miliband's opening speech and hopefully my closing speech in slightly uh, less uh, eye-catching way uh, were, um, were were holding the government to, to account and, and and showing the you know the, the the dangerous actions of this government and the repercussions that that will have not just in terms of our European negotiations but also our ability to do trade deals or any other type of, of deals or negotiations whether it be on on on, on climate change or fighting terrorism etc if, if we can't be trusted uh, um, to, to, to keep our, our word and 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 honor um, the treaties that we have we have signed so I don't think we've been quiet. Uh, it's also been, um, it has been harder to, to get time in Parliament to, to focus on issues. So um, in the previous Parliament, after every um, round of negotiations with the European Union, Theresa May would come back to Parliament and make a statement. Um, Boris Johnson hasn't made statements on on on, on Brexit and the, Brexit, on, on the um, negotiations for a trade deal. Michael Gove has hardly made any either. The only times that we have got Michael Gove to, to the Commons is when we've put down urgent questions. And we've done that on a number of occasions. We put one down this week, but it wasn't granted. So, you know, we, we've been trying to get Michael Gove to, to the Commons um, at every Cabinet Office questions. This this week, I asked two questions. Last week, I asked two questions. Paul Blomfield, Shadow Brexit Minister, asked, asked a question on, on it. So we're using all the opportunities that we have at our disposal to be holding the government to account and to and to challenge them but look nobody thought that this year i thought stephen's point all of us um have had things we wanted to do this year that we haven't been able to do um one would have thought at the um you know at the at the end of last year that brexit would be the dominant issue of this year as it has been for the last um three years you know that all that changed in february and march of of of, of this year and, um, you know, of course, our our focus and our priorities um, had to change with that as well. But 
you know, we've been doing our best to hold the government to account on, on this um, hugely important important issue and we'll continue to uh, to, to do so. Um, I'm not sure, Sienna, whether, um, um, you know, if we had have been shouting more, it would have made the government more likely to, 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 to get a um, to, to get a deal. I'm not sure I'm convinced by um, by that argument, but, um, you know, certainly through the rest of this year and through the rest of this parliament, we'll be calling out the government where they get it wrong, uh, in, including on, on, on areas of, of Brexit, on diluting our workers' rights, animal welfare, environmental standards, uh, uh, and, um, and and for the chaos and incompetence that uh, we've seen, you know, most visibly with um, with the coronavirus, but also increasingly visibly on Brexit as well, with all the implications we're seeing uh, in terms of, of infrastructure, cost of businesses, and when businesses are faced with additional costs, that is always passed on uh, either to consumers with um, with higher prices or to workers with job losses. Uh, and uh, you know this government has to take responsibility for its own actions, and we've been making sure that they do, um, um, they are held accountable for the actions and decisions that that they've made. There is a danger, isn't there, that Boris Johnson? I think you, both you and Anne, touched on this. That Boris Johnson could get this really thin deal that isn't. I mean, there there, is, there are some similarities between that and no deal, but it's still going to be very painful, and he'll come out looking like he's achieved something brilliant. Um, is is that partly why Labour hasn't really, really wanted to talk about the dangers of no deal? Because it kind of sets the bar that he has to overcome just far too low. What do yeah, you think I think that I think that is stop that. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, uh, Sian. Um, I, I think that's absolutely right. If, if the the bar to success was securing any old deal then it would be a reasonably easy bar for the government to meet. That's why we've been saying that they need to deliver the deal that they promised to the British people in, in the election last year, which is much wider ranging and broader than the deal that, um, if they do bring back one, um, that is, um, is, is likely to be achieved now. So I think it is important, not just because we sort of made some of these mistakes previously in, in the last parliament, um, and uh, and we said that Boris Johnson was not going to be able to secure a deal, and and, and then he did. That if just achieving a, a, some sort of deal is a mark of success, then I think we're we're making it too easy for um, for, for the Tories. So we want them to achieve a deal, but you know we need to hold them to account for the deal that they promised to the to the British people, which is going to be a long, long way from what they um, what they do bring back. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Can I just then to Labour setting out, not in sort of granular detail, but in broad overview, what it would be asking for that the government isn't asking for, just so that can be pointed to down the line in the event that this has, well, it will have an economic impact and a negative economic impact, and say actually, if you'd done it our way that we were suggesting at the time, this could have been less painful. I mean, you can say protects jobs, protects investment. Uh, but what in particular would do that that the government isn't asking for? Well, I, I think one practical thing that would be pretty straightforward to do and is in the gift of the government is to commit ourselves to having um, the European standards around workers' rights, environmental rights, uh, animal welfare rights as a baseline uh, for, for, for our country. And the government haven't signed up to those. In fact, they've reneged on commitments that they made at the election last year. That's just one example, I think, of how we could say that our, um, our future relationship with the European Union and our guarantee around some of those hard-won rights would be very different under a Labour government uh, to a Conservative one. And we could legislate, for example, uh, to, to, to enshrine those that, that baseline in, in, in our law. But this government have got no desire to do that uh, because they see, and you see it through the appointment of Tony Abbott, actually, to be on the, um, on, on the, uh, the, one of the, on the Board of Trade, is um, that, that, that they see this as an opportunity to, uh, to, to, to compete uh, by lowering our, our standards. And so the costs of businesses fall, they fall because they have to meet lower standards than they did do previously. That's not a race that the um, that Labour Party wants to, to, to win. We want to improve um, standards uh, and, and, and win a race through having high skills, high productivity uh, and, and, and good quality uh, jobs not through uh, cutting corners, which seems to be an approach, I'm afraid, of this government. So that's just one example, um, I think, of, of a way in which we would be doing things differently in accordance with our values, which I think also chimes more with the values of the British people. 
Okay, let's use the last 10 minutes to talk about the future. So let's talk about beyond January 1st. What is Labour doing at that point? There's a deal. Uh, if broad pre preparations are kind of broadly in place, uh, take an optimistic view, then what is Labour saying at that point? What's its message? That's me. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, um, no, that's fine. Um, so, 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 I, I think that um, you know, if we, if we get into next year and there there is a deal, um, then I think we need to you know be keeping a very close eye on on what's happening in terms of jobs, um, what's happening in terms of deals with other countries, because I think that's also an important element to, to this, and that's why the government don't want to sign up. Um, as my answer to the last question and Anand's point, that's why the government don't want to sign up to these um, the, the, these right, different rights and standards because they see it as an impediment to getting deals with, with other countries. So we need to watch out for those deals. We need to watch out what's happening in terms of the cost to business, um, particularly through the additional bureaucracy, and also um, you know, how those IT systems are going, because this government have not got a great track record when it comes to delivering IT systems. Let's hope they're not using Excel for any of them, for example. Um, but um, you know, we need to make, make to, to be holding to account for um, what we're seeing at, at, at the border and the impact that that's having on jobs, but also prices paid in, in, in the shop. And, I can't remember if it was Anand or Stephen who, who mentioned uh, earlier, I think it was Anand, that, you know, even through all this pandemic, um, despite some of the shortages at the beginning uh, with pasta and flour and what have you, um, we were able to, uh, to, 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 to keep our supermarkets pretty well stocked uh, and for us not to um, face uh, uh, shortages in, in, in essentials. But will that be the case as we get into January next year if we have delays at the border and um, as both Anand and, and Stephen have, have both um, eloquently put it put it as well that we'll be doing all of this when the pandemic is still going to be rife um, in, 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 in our communities and in, and in Europe as well and, and so the, the risks of getting goods to market and medicines uh, uh, to, to, to people um, you know could be quite severe so we need to be keeping an eye on all of these things and holding government to account um, uh, against the promises that they made, um, you know, it'll be just over a year ago at, 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 at that point. And I think we're well placed to do that because I think we've got a, a good eye on the detail. Um, we're following negotiations, uh, but also the developments in terms of, of IT and infrastructure uh, here closely. We've got good relationship with business and trade unions who are obviously um, are very concerned about what's happening. Uh, and, and so we'll be holding government to account on, on what, whatever happens. Uh, you know, Stephen might be right that we may end up um, and I think it's a closely balanced thing. We may end up at the end of the year without a, a deal, in which case uh, negotiations of some form will have to continue because leaving without a, a deal isn't a um, isn't an end state. It's not a sort of sustainable uh, outcome. So negotiations at a sector level or on particular issues around uh, security and, and data sharing will, will have to continue. And if that's the situation we're in, there will be an even greater uh, urgency and need to... Uh, to, to, to push government on solutions to what will be um, quite serious problems of, of, of frictions and um, at the border of shortages of, of goods and, and, um, um, and in the shops and in our supply chains. So whatever it is, we'll be holding the government to accounts uh, and, 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 and pointing out the, the, the mistakes that they've made and the chaos uh, that they have um, that they have prevailed. Stephen, what do you think is likely and what do you think would be useful for Labour to start talking about once we're beyond that point in terms of the kind of U the UK's relationship with the EU in future would you kind of go down the Gordon Brown route he's really been talking about the kind of various programs like Horizon and really emphasizing those benefits and showing that you know polling shows most voters want to stay in all those things uh, regardless of whether they were leavers what kind of things would you think that Labour should be focusing on or will be focusing on? Um, well, I think what Labour primarily will be focusing on is, a, is will a desire to talk about other things, to focus on its preferred frames of competence and the economy. I think what it needs to do, and indeed this is kind of a broader thing than the political class um, you know, needs to do, uh, is kind of get away from this idea that there's this weird thing called Brexit that sits separately from everything else. You know, our 
environmental policy is is linked to our trade relationships with the eu with the us with uncle tom cobble etc etc and i think then that is probably as well as it being more a more useful position for labor politically because um that's when they are no longer arguing about this Brexit question, which is politically painful for Labour. But it also is a point where they're actually arguing about things they would do. So it's not so much that, I mean, I think Gordon Brown's right to say, and obviously, you know, people do like the idea of staying in Horizon 2020 funding, but it's actually not even so much about, like, what is popular. Uh, if we want to re remain, um, you know, with a world-leading university sector and a, you know, an epicentre of, of, of scientific research and innovation, well, that does have implications for your visa policy with the US, your visa policy with China, but also with your institutional relationship with the EU. And I think then in some ways the Conservatives do best when all of these quite complex issues become this big dividing line called Brexit or not Brexit. And I think Labour's big challenge over the next four years is to kind of um, to pull that, pull that apart. So instead of having these kind of yes, no, you're a Remainer lawyer kind of, kind of debate, they are once again able to go, well, look, how does this look? You cannot fit the government's actually very good food strategy paper with its Brexit strategy, right? Like the government's own objectives cannot be fit, cannot do not fit together. And I think then uh, the big thing for Labour is to is to kind of expose that. What and the way to do that is by, um, in an odd way, kind of for shadow ministers not to kind of have this almost attitude of like, oh, Brexit's Rachel's problem. Brexit's their problem too. In many ways, their problem more so. We're very happy to share it. And then what's your take on all of that? I think that's a strong recommendation for Labour to think about it in terms of policy areas and not just Brexit. Oh, I agree with that because Brexit will infect everything. But the way I would see it is that the, one of the challenges facing Labour in the run up to the next election is to divide the Leave coalition. Uh, that is to say, this isn't about whether you're pro or anti-Brexit. What, 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 what Labour, what the Tories did very, very well last December was create a Leave coalition that got them this majority. Once we've left, once the transition period is over, we don't know what happens to the debate. We still seem to have two very entrenched tribes in this country, one might leave, one might remain. But as Stephen says, one of the tasks that Labour face is to try to nibble away at that and erode that clear division and actually appeal to those leavers who wanted a different, you know, and say to them, actually, Brexit could have been done in a number of ways. This particular way means X, Y and Z consequences that wouldn't necessarily have been the case. And I think by splitting the Leave coalition, uh, Labour can move towards reversing the result of, of last December. But that means talking about Brexit as central to the public policies and to the economic situation in this country for the three or four years to come. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask this question because it's the top rated one uh, from people who are watching at the moment. Um, so someone asked, what if polls in 2024 are showing 70% of the UK public want to rejoin the EU? The Labour Party can't ignore that. And the next question down that's most popular is, does Labour see Britain's place as being in the EU or not? So Rachel, if you'd just like to give some closing remarks on those kind of questions, because I think those are the kind of things that uh, Labour members often ask of MPs and probably you too. I, I can understand why people are asking those questions. And I do understand that, you know, that Labour members feel very strongly. Uh, and, you know, look, I, I, I was a, a, a big campaigner for Remain, a big supporter of a people's vote. I wish that we weren't in the situation that we are in now. But I think that trying to reopen the, those debates and those old wounds, I don't think will help the country move on. I don't think it will help the Labour Party move on as, as well. And I don't see that we are going to be in a position at the next election to be campaigning to go back into the European Union. And... You know, I vote. I represent a, a Leave voting constituency. Um, many of my colleagues have lost their seats in seats nearby me, um, in part, in part because of this issue around um, Brexit. And I think that we do need to accept the results of the referendum and the last election and move on. That doesn't mean accepting the deal that the Conservatives bring back if they do bring back a deal and saying that that is now the end point. 
and where we will be um, under a Labour government? Absolutely not. I've already given one example in answer to Anand's question about things that we would want to do differently based on our values and our view of the national interest. Um, I want to work closely with our European neighbours and allies, and I certainly don't regard um, ourselves as somehow drifting in the in the mid Atlantic. Our closing, our closest trading partners, uh, the countries that most closely align with uh, our values, I believe, are other countries within the European Union and outside of the European Union too. I believe that we need to work closely with them on a whole range of issues in a way that I just know the Conservatives won't in the next few years. So under Labour government, we will have a close relationship with the European Union, but we won't be back in the European Union. And I know that is something that is sad and difficult to come to terms with for a lot of us. But I think that is the reality that we have to face up to, but also recognise that there'll be huge opportunities for an incoming Labour government to reset that relationship in a way that is consistent with our values and with the national interest as well. Thank you so much. You've all been brilliant. I think it's been a really interesting event. Um, Anand, do you want to say a few words just about UK and a Changing Europe, your events? And we are going to do more of these Labour List and UK and a Changing Europe events. So obviously um, keep following us for that. But Anand, do you just want to close the event? Well, yeah, just to say, firstly, thanks, Rachel and Stephen. Secondly, thanks, Sienna. Uh, we are partnering with Labour List to do a series of events not just about Brexit, but as much about post-Brexit Britain. So the point is to look ahead at what, because, you know, following on what Stephen said, Brexit will have an impact on every single aspect of this country, from its economics to its internal sort of constitutional arrangements to devolution. And it, I'm really chuffed that we get to do this series of events with you, Sienna, and sort of think these through in a hopefully measured, calm and interesting way. So join us for the next one. Brilliant. Thank you so much, everyone who's been watching.